0: Welcome to the FT Business Books podcast, the place to discover the best in writing for business leaders. I'm Michael Skopinka, FT Contributing Editor and Columnist. For this series, we asked our leading commentators and columnists to choose books to bring solace in turbulent times. This week, Anjana Huja, the FT Science columnist, has chosen Without Conscience, The Disturbing World of the Psychopaths Among Us by Robert Hare. Welcome, Anjana. Thank you. But before we get onto this book and we discover why you feel that it's one for our business books podcast, perhaps one for enlightenment rather than solace, we always ask the question, what are you reading at the moment?
1: I'm not really at liberty to divulge what I'm reading at the moment because I'm a judge in this year's Bailey Gifford non prize but I will tell you what I had been reading before then which was That's fine. Um, which was Going to the Wars by Max Hastings. I think as a writer when you read other writers you're looking for them to articulate experiences that you can't access and I really admire those who, who have the courage to go out and report on wars. And Max Hastings, as we know, a former editor of the Daily Telegraph, a great war reporter. He is a fantastic reporter of, of what's going on in some of the most difficult places in the world. And I think what comes across is he doesn't make himself out to be this courageous, you know, kind of hero striding towards the front lines. Um, but it's a very human account of really human behaviour. In difficult times, in times of war, and how sort of normal boundaries of behaviour break down, you know, what happens to societies when they collapse. And it's really enlightening. And, and, you know, you've always got the big picture and you've got the human side to that. And I think he's a terrific writer.
0: He was very well known, Max Hastings, for covering the Falklands War. What other conflicts does he talk about? He
1: talks about, very memorable, about the fall of Saigon. And one of the most memorable um, pieces I read was really when he went to Cyprus and described probably one of the most difficult moments of his career, which was being dragged out of a car, pushed up against the wall by a young Turkish soldier and having a rifle pointed at his head and, and he talks about you know for that moment all you can do is be absolutely passive there's no comeback because you know that your life or death is in the hands of someone who's never had such control in their lives and all you can do is just hope that in that calm environment sort of common sense will prevail and he does get out but it's a very chastening experience for him
0: So what does he tell us about people at war I mean we know about how n- norms break down, the usual ways of behaviour break down, mm-hmm. there's also I suppose this the common view of war as producing heroism as well.
1: There is, there's extraordinary heroism and of course just by the nature of what he does there are a lot of people he mentions in terms of war reporting who go um, who will take the risk and And there's a bit of me thinks why are you taking this risk you know and and you come to almost see it as a drug I think it's I used to talk to foreign correspondents when I worked on a foreign desk many many years ago and you know during the course of the day the foreign correspondents would ring in many from war zones and you know there's a bit of me that would really admire what they did but there was also a bit of me that thought they were absolute gamblers and and they were in it for the thrill not in a a, a sort of kind of self-aggrandizing way it's it it's that that they needed to be there they needed to report they needed the rush of kind of knowing what was going on they couldn't bear to be away even if some of them had come from the most appalling situations I remember talking to Anthony Lloyd about this of a sort of very well regarded war reporter but he always wants to be in the thick of the action no matter how bad the previous experience has been I, I find that it's something that I can listen to and not quite understand not comprehend you know these people are different from me
0: Well We'll come to that when we talk about your, your book about psychopaths but I suppose there's the question are these people predisposed to enjoy danger or once having experienced it does it produce this adrenaline rush this danger rush that they're attracted to returning to
1: the short answer is i don't know because i can't i don't know what's going on in their brains my suspicion is is that many of us have a propensity to find things that we find rewarding that will give us the dopamine rush whether that's you know just tweeting incessantly you know for those wonderful likes that we all covet or if it's rushing to a war zone. I mean, I I can understand from a reporter's point of view, you want to report the stories you think are really important, and and for a foreign correspondent, that is often going to be in some of the most difficult places on earth where other people aren't getting in. So there's a, there's you know there's professional pride, but I'm sure there's 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 a thrill in it as well of going somewhere that your colleagues can't get to or won't get to. There's a you know there is there is a bravado. There's a community in the same way that I suspect every patch of you know reporting. Has has its own kind of community with its own ways and habits. You know, you want to, you want to be liked and admired by your peers. And I, I'm sure that's as true for war reporting as any other kind of reporting.
0: Well, I think that brings us quite neatly into the world of psychopaths, which is a disturbing world, as described in this book by Robert Hare. It's a disturbing world of people who lie and cheat, who murder and rape and who do it without conscience. This book is also about psychopaths in the workplace, not just about people who are responsible for huge financial frauds, but also those who irritate and infuriate their workmates, while often hugely impressing their superiors for reasons that others don't understand. Tell us a little bit more about this book and why you chose it.
1: Well, interestingly, I was upstairs and in a room full of books, because I have a lot of science books, and it just so happened to be that I was flicking through some of the science books and pulled out this one. This was probably not long after the Brexit vote and I sat down and started reading it and it reminded me why it had been such a seminal popular science book. Robert Hare is a Canadian academic who has specialised in psychopathy. He's produced something called the Hare Checklist, which is 20 or so We can call them traits or symptoms. And if you score very highly on that checklist, then you can regard yourself as having psychopathic tendencies. So, for example, are you outwardly glib? You have to answer honestly, obviously. You know, do you feel empathy when people are upset? That kind of thing. But when I pull this book out again... I was actually reminded of some of the coverage of the financial crisis and the figures that are central in that. That may be fair or unfair, but I do think it has lessons for us. It's a very old book. It's, it's 1993. So in terms of, of what we would call new and, and so on, it's, it's quite old, but it is a classic. And I think just revisiting Hare's first popular exposition of what psychopathy is how psychopaths operate. There are lots of case studies, but also this idea that they don't have to be kind of serial killers in prisons, that there are aspects of the behaviour that we can see out in normal life, perhaps the people we know, the people we love, the the people we work with. I think that is a very useful primer on what we need to know as we go forward, I think, in, in times of uncertainty, because people with personality disorders, as psychopathy is do tend to thrive in these kinds of environments where people are insecure where people are nervous for their for their own jobs and and they do surprisingly well in the workplace especially because there's a hierarchical kind of you know structure to to many corporate workplaces
0: tell us some of you've alluded to some of them but tell us some of the the points on this checklist what kinds of things make a psychopath what kinds of things describe a psychopath
1: There are around 20 points on this. Let me see if I can think of some. The ones about being charming, about being impulsive, about having kind of quite chaotic short-term goals rather than long-term goals, about the ability to take responsibility and the willingness to fess up, if you like, to things that you've done, being superficial or glib, being able or unable to empathise. And that's a really key one because Robert Hare calls his book Without Conscience. And we do think of conscience as a uniquely human attribute. You know, it's it's our moral guide. It's about what's right and wrong. And, And it might not be necessarily what's legally right and wrong. You know, there is a difference between morality and legality. And I think all of those kinds of aspects are things that we probably ought to be cognizant of whenever we're in times of uncertainty.
0: Now you say it's not just serial killers who are psychopaths but a lot of this book is about very very disturbed criminals, serial killers, um, people who have left an absolute trail of destruction mm. of criminal destruction behind yes. them One of the striking aspects of the psychopaths he talks about in this book to me was the way in which they are parents fathers are sometimes mothers to endless numbers of children that they fail to look after. He does talk about quite disturbed individuals in the book.
1: He does and I think that's probably a product of his own field work in that he does a lot of work in prisons and with prisoners who are obviously have have done things that are so serious that they have to be behind bars. But I think there's also a very interesting chapter in there about white-collar psychopaths and I think what is now understood more than perhaps it was 20, 30 years ago is that you can wreak destruction in many different ways. It doesn't have to be killing. And we know this because of what happens in workplaces. So when you think about what motivates a psychopath, let's think about what they're after. Very often they are seeking ways of pumping themselves up to the expense of others. So you could think of it as a a fourfold goal, which is money, status, power and control. You don't just get those necessarily in personal relationships, you can get those in the workplace, you can aspire to those. And in fact, a lot of business, I would say, the way business is organised, actually attracts those kinds of individuals. And that's why I think it's really interesting to me that the number of psychologists that have seized upon workplaces as actually kind of fertile grounds for undiagnosed psychopaths I suppose you could say well you know they're not diagnosed because they're not killing people or they're not causing any problems but I think there's a probably a, an acceptance among psychologists that they are causing havoc in boardrooms management structures up and down the country uh, across the world so there are several studies that have tried to look at The proportions of CEOs, for example, who are psychopaths, and they've come out with some ludicrous high figures. I'm not sure I believe them, but so for background, about 1% in the population of of people are thought to have psychopathic tendencies. Now, there, there was one study that came out. I think it was an Australian study came out last year that suggested the figure among CEOs could be as high as a fifth. That's one in five which is, you know, up to 20% of CEOs could be psychopaths. Now, I think that's really interesting because let's look at what you prize in a CEO, or what you prize in, in an entrepreneur. It is somebody who has a grand sense of what they can achieve. They need to inspire confidence in their venture in order to get investment. They need to get people to buy into what can be quite a shaky starting premise. So in some ways, we shouldn't be surprised that many of those personality traits that Robert Hare identified then come out in the corporate sphere.
0: But I mean, a lot of these people are very effective. They thrive in these yes. jobs and they stay on the, many of them stay on the right side of the law. So I suppose yes. this raises the question, of do they serve a useful function within business?
1: Well, that's really interesting because we've just talked about the overlap in, in those personality traits between, say, entrepreneurs and people who you might describe as psychopathic. I think what is really interesting then is governance. So you can have brilliant, charismatic visionaries if you don't have the governance necessarily to keep them in check. I think that can then potentially become a problem. So let's look at some of the, uh, not by name, but let's look at some of the big Silicon Valley entrepreneurs who structure their shareholdings, for example, so they have a lot of control and relatively low governance. I think those are interesting situations. Those those kind of the dual class shareholdings have, have come up as an issue before. And I think, I suppose we need to go back and think, what is business for? And those are quite fundamental, almost existentialist questions. Business is there to provide profits to shareholders, and but I don't think you would find many people today who would say that that should be done at the expense of all else.
0: I suppose one of the questions we should ask is, if these people are performing a useful function, and as you say, it's all about governance, if you've got somebody in your department, a junior, but obviously quite charismatic person, who you think has got psychopathic tendencies what should you as an organization or you as a manager do about them should you think i can manage this person or should you get rid of them
1: i feel slightly uncomfortable giving a a, a sort of management or hr advice here i mean i i think you owe it to the if, if you have suspicions or suspicions are brought to you about an employee i think particularly for that person's subordinates juniors you owe it to them to make sure that they are not being squashed by somebody behaving very badly above them who is in a position of power. And so very often there are processes in companies where where you can limit that exercise of power in a way. So, for example, 360 degree reviews, if they're honest, they should be able to expose where, where people are abusing their position of power and privilege I think what is interesting is in the cases of corporate bad behaviour if you like that's come to light is that these instances didn't come out of a vacuum they tend to have been preceded by you know there's a trail of little sort of giveaway incidents along the way. And I think it just shows you very often how very, very good people can be at covering their trail, at, at sort of co-opting people around them, particular juniors, into seeing the world in, in from their point of view. And I think those can be very difficult to guard against. And you raise a really interesting point, Michael, is if these guys are doing brilliant work, then why well, rain on their parade but i think very often you might find that their versions of brilliance come from themselves rather than the people around them if
0: this figure is right or anywhere near right that uh, 20% of ceos are psychopaths or have psychopathic tendencies that means a lot of people are working for psychopaths <laughs> yes. how do you, do you what do you do when your your boss is a psychopath i mean robert hare basically says learn to recognize them and get out of the way but People are not going to have that option if there are that many of them around.
1: Well, first of all, you would have to take it that that figure is accurate. I think it sounds remarkably high to me because I, I think even though these CEOs may score some of the traits on that checklist, I doubt they would score um, all of them. But you raise a conundrum. I mean, it's a difficulty. But then again, there are some people prefer to work for that sort of slightly mad visionary the crazy visionary because they are promised riches at the end of it and people do strange things for money so you can say that you you know with high risks and a challenging working environment come high rewards and those are exactly the kind of environments i think that that will attract perhaps the, the the layer of of psychopathically inclined employees underneath.
0: You make the point, uh, which I think is a very good one, that that figure does sound high and, uh, you know, people might have some aspects of psychopathy but not all of them is there a danger that uh, particularly today we're using the word psychopath too lightly and applying it too broadly
1: well i'm talking about it in its original inception i think you're right that there is a popular idea of psychopaths as these you know serial killers like ted bundy or people that you know of that they look very obviously unhinged i, th- I think there is a kind of a prejudiced use of the word i suppose it's not how i would tend to use it it's also very important to say that there is a distinction between a psychopath and a sociopath uh, which is almost like a milder form of that but they're both Personality, both kinds of personalities are ones that I think the corporate world needs to be aware of. I I understand that Robert Hare, together with someone else, is currently developing a a form of his checklist for the corporate environment. And I think that would be a really interesting use of his research. I think one danger with this is that we can be sensationalist about it and we say, oh, you know, boardrooms up and, you know, all over the world are being run by lunatics. But I I don't think that's quite true. and we do have to be careful about our use of language. And one of the ways that's come out is one thing I've tried not to do is to diagnose, so to speak, people in, in the media. I'm, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a clinical psychologist. I can't do that. And I think it's quite dangerous when we go down that route.
0: You're not a doctor, but you are a scientist. Let's yes. talk a little bit about the science of psychopathy, because Robert Hare goes into this and uh, he says these matters are not settled or they weren't settled when he wrote. But he talks about brain function of people mm. with psychopathy. He talks about the fact that they have this bilateral brain function. The two sides of their brain probably don't, co- don't, don't coordinate in the way that they should First of all, tell me your view of the science at the time and whether that science is still regarded as credible today.
1: Well, there's a very kind of highly regarded scientist called James Fallon, if I remember correctly, who has done sort of much more modern studies of psychopaths, functional brain imaging, which is the fashionable kind of way to probe behaviour these days. And there is a lot of controversy about the use of functional magnetic resonance imaging which is the technology that's used to look at brains while people are being given tasks or being asked to do something or think of something or even just to look at brain structure the great problem with it is is there isn't a huge library of these scans so it's very difficult to make sweeping statements and say well here's here's what a normal brain looks like here's what a pathological brain looks like. I think that's very difficult and it varies for every condition that you look at. One of the biggest tests is what the courts have done with with brain imaging. I don't think it has been well established, certainly in terms of legal usability, that we can absolutely diagnose a psychopath from just by looking at their brain I think the courts would be doing that a lot more if the science was settled but as it's very active I mean this is brain function imaging uh, functional brain imaging has only really been around for kind of 15-20 years and it's still in its infancy I would say And, of course, when when somebody presents to you, you don't always have the means to inspect their brain. Usually what you're looking at is their behaviour today and records of their past behaviour.
0: Robert Hare does say he's quite pessimistic about the possibility of reforming psychopaths. He basically says it's quite difficult. And he said something at the time of his book which a lot of the programmes in prisons to try and help psychopaths actually end up making them worse. They become more glib, they learn the things to say. I was very struck by that because there was a recent report Report that programmes in British prisons for child abusers had actually ended up in some cases making them worse. He's very pessimistic about these people getting better or being better.
1: Yes, I can understand that. It's one of the things that we can say about many people with psychopathic tendencies is that they are very clever. And I think if you have not developed a sense of right and wrong... It's very hard to see how you can get someone to sincerely cultivate one because one of the things that stops us from doing things that we think are wrong and that hurt other people are the reactions of other people. And if we are not reacting to other people, then you're not necessarily getting the input that you need to cultivate that sense of conscience. I think it is a great challenge. I think one of the things that we can probably most productively do to go forward is to recognise that there are people with these tendencies and help them recognise perhaps how their behaviour affects other people How you do that effectively and in a way that prevents future misbehaviour I think is a great challenge and I cannot offer any easy solutions to that. There's something
0: I suppose optimistic that we can draw from Robert Hare's book. It's not what he intended but as you say he wrote this book in 1993 and he predicted that things were going to get worse. He thought we were going to be at more psychopathy because he said although this is partly a brain function there are also social factors which cause psychopathy and he saw them all getting worse. He said we're going to see increased crime, we're going to see increased social breakdown. Now, there have been ups and downs, there have been blips in this, but in general, in the developed world, crime has fallen markedly since he wrote his book. And I wonder whether perhaps people are behaving better despite the fact that we still have all these people running around.
1: You're, you're making me think of Stephen Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, which argues that violence has been pretty much in decline in tandem with the rise, if you like, of civilization. Well, there are social factors, and I think we are beginning to know particularly about the importance of a stable, loving childhood. So, there's a very interesting scientist in the States called Terry Moffat who works on a particular gene which has been called the aggression gene in the past, which has been found to be overrepresented in people in prison. Now, it doesn't mean that if you get the gene you will become a renegade and and likewise it doesn't mean that if you've had a tough childhood that you will also become a criminal but what it does do is illustrate I think Matt Ridley's very elegant phrase nature via nurture which is that we are born with a set of genes but the way they're expressed and the way they come out the way that we turn out is very heavily influenced by our environments. And we know that, for example, that people brought up in stable, loving childhood homes tend to be less prone to going off the rails. So there are things that we can do, you know, so whatever brain you're born with, we know that loving parents and a stable childhood will make a difference. Um, Education makes a difference. We know that. Having a job makes a difference, so there are reasons to be optimistic. I think there is a lot that science can do here, and actually, I find that the social sciences are, are very much neglected. I think in, in this because we are talking about our humanity, and the study of the humanities is is about how how can we assess the human condition, how can we make our lives better, and science can tell us one thing, and one of the things it's occasionally guilty of is taking us down what seems to be quite a deterministic path. But I think it's always really useful to remember that environmental facts matter. We know that and that this gives us hope. So our biology is not everything we can, to some extent, shape the lives and the outcomes and the successes of, of ourselves and our children.
0: Just because we're coming to the end, and as this is a business books podcast, let's bring it back to the thing of what organisations and companies should do. Now that they're aware or people are becoming increasingly aware of the problems of personalities like this, uh, do you think companies should take a, make a more active effort to screen these people out, to prevent them from getting to the tops of organisations?
1: You know, I, I have mixed feelings about things like psychometric Testing because there's a little bit of me that says if someone is really good at their job, they may not necessarily be working a lot with people, then psychometric screening has the capacity to screen out brilliant people unfairly. But there's also a little bit of me that says, you know, we don't really want to reduce people to pen and paper checklists and we should actually let them see how they do, see how they get on. But I do think that one of the key areas is governance. I think if you're bringing someone into your organisation, I do think it is beholden on you to ensure that they're operating fairly, fairly to the people above them and below them, that they're operating honestly, ethically within your guidelines of what you think is acceptable. And that there ought to be ways of remedying things when things go wrong. Even though I'm I love science and I, I like the scientific approach to things, but I think sometimes it can be quite restrictive. But I think we need to be able to take chances on people when they come. And I don't think, you know, people can change their ways if they've done badly in the past. But on the other hand, you need to make sure that when people are in they are giving back as well as taking out. And that's the other key aspect of psychopathy is that people take a lot more than they give. You know, we're all reciprocal. We should be reciprocating You know, business should be about reciprocity as well, as well as human relationships. So I think there are, there are means there for, for governance.
0: Well, thank you very much, Anjana. Now that's the last in the current series of the FT Business Books podcast. We're taking a break for the summer and we'll return in the autumn. In the meantime, please do stay in touch using the Twitter hashtag FTBizBooks, B-I-Z, or by emailing us at businessbooks at ft.com. My thanks once again to Anjana Ahuja, to our producer Yanina Comboy, and thank you to all of you for listening.